This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is November 4th, 2021, and this is episode 264. I'm Strat And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, everyone in the world seems to be sick again because cold and flu season is back. I'm not totally down. Everyone else in my house is. You're not doing too caught. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, coming off a sore throat, so if uh, I let Ian do the share of the talking this week, that, that'll be why. Well, we have... <laughs> things to talk about they're not the deepest wells for our knowledge so we might be faster this week we always say that we always think that and then we end up recording an hour and a half sorry jesse if you're editing a long episode tonight on today's show we're going to talk about the old growth forest logging deferrals and drug decriminalizations that will happen eventually maybe possibly but no one is happy in the meantime And the Kevin Falcon campaign is in the news, but not for good reasons. We'll dig into how they're dealing with some sexual harassment allegations. Thank you to everyone who contributes to keep this show going. Your support on Patreon every month or annually is deeply appreciated. It lets us fund all our fancy websites and feeds and some of the gadgets and gear. And one day, maybe it will help us put on a live show. But that's how you spread disease, so who knows if we'll ever be in person again. (laughs) Go to patreon.com slash politicoast. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast, enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to politicstoday.news slash free dash trial. Let's start off, though, as always, on the greatest BC Premier bracket. We are pretty much done meeting all of the Premiers. We still have Conservative Richard McBride and New Democrats, Dan Miller and Dave Barrett to go. But before we get to them, we will go through another step of the rounds. They're all in the semifinals, so we'll hit them all there. Last week, we put Ujal Dessange up against John Horgan. This was a controversial choice. Many people on Twitter noted we should probably not include a current sitting premier. I debated it going back and forth. Your option is to always just vote against him. And the next time we do this, if he's not premier, you can <laughs> vote for him. Are we going to do this one again? Or are we going to, I don't know, what, <clears throat> move on to other cabinet positions? I'll have the greatest... Uh minister for uh, agriculture i'm actually wanting to do worst premier next where we just (laughs) we don't have to do them all but we take i feel like that'll be really biased towards the ones that are yeah i'm hoping what we discover through this process of doing all the premiers is that there were a lot of really bad ones early on offering to give the way to a princess was a weird choice and maybe it was a bad one maybe it was a good one but there's lots of other it's yeah, a funny there was lots of racist least. stuff, though, so maybe that qualifies you. Nevertheless, last week, John Horgan did defeat Ujal Dessange 49-10. to 10. That's not really surprising, given 
Dessange didn't serve for that long and left the party rather bitterly divided. NDP wasn't in a great state at that point, and there were a lot of hurt feelings coming out of it then. Right now, though, I did want to use this as an opportunity to give a little update on John Horgan's health. He announced today that the operation that he had last week, while it was successful, it was cancer, and so he's going to be spending the remainder of 2021 undergoing radiation treatment for cancer of the throat, which is quite a terrifying one as that's yeah that's not pleasant so we all wish him well and it's he sounds optimistic the statements sound optimistic but i yeah we hope that uh, optimism's borne out yeah let's just leave it there we don't want to speculate darkly when we can move on and look at the next round so we're going to go all the way back to the non-partisan premiers and do the semifinals there Right now, we have Amor de Cosmos versus Charles Augustus Semlin. I'm going to take my write-ups on both of these. I know we've covered both of these men a couple times already, but I'm going to find or try to find a different write-up for each to feature. So, I found this Williams-like Tribune article by Barry Sal that wrote up a little bit about de Cosmos. So, I hope you all indulge me on a little story about Amor de Cosmos. As you will remember, he's the second premier of BC from December 1872 to February 7, 1874. Born in Nova Scotia, he moved to Halifax at age 15, where he began debating and got into politics. He joined the Mormon church at age 20, and he also began photography. That passion would take him a couple years later to Iowa and then to California. And there he established a business with his brother that included, quote, taking pictures of naked people and producing naughty postcards, the most traditional of Mormon activities these days. <laughs> he is quoted as possibly being the father of California's porn industry. That was also around the time he changed his name to Amor de Cosmos, which many say was to possibly just avoid legal proceedings. Real class act. He would follow the gold rush in 1858 to Victoria, BC. There he would establish the Daily British Colonist newspaper, which would later become, after some mergers, the Victoria Times Colonist that you can read today. And he was editor there until 1863 when he jumped into politics. He had basically three goals in his early years was then Vancouver Island politics. It was the union of Vancouver Island and BC, getting BC into confederation and to get BC connected to the rest of Canada by railway. All of those succeeded. The railway took a lot longer though. <laughs> that was a big uh, just quoting directly from sales article on his time as premier. Unfortunately, De Cosmos proved to be as mediocre in power as he was brilliant in opposition. He was a shameless entrepreneur, and his attempts to obtain monetary guarantees from Ottawa to complete the Esquimalt dry dock and to move CPR terminus to Victoria under threat of pulling out of the union with the rest of Canada gained him some major political enemies. How, what was even the plan to bring the terminus to Victoria? Like, how do you get the rail there? I guess maybe up in the islands up, up by the north. I don't island, know. But... We'll have to figure out what the plan was there. There, there's probably a really interesting old map somewhere with that uh, marked out. Yeah, because it's a long bridge to go from Twasin to Swartz Bay, for example. A really long bridge through some turbulent waters. Yeah, I, I, I think it's... I think I remember looking, like, up up north, I think it's about four, five kilometers. The shortest span you can fit between islands Which is quite ambitious for the late 19th century. Yeah, depending on the depths of the water, it could even be ambitious now. 
In addition, some under-the-table land speculations, support of a very questionable Texada Island iron mine project, and more than one conflict of interest scandal led to his removal as premier in eighteen seventy. Classic BC politics. Very classic. As the story goes, an angry mob of victorious citizens marched down to the legislature, chanting to the tune of Johnny's Brown Body the words, We're gonna hang to Cosmos on a sour apple tree. I don't know that song. Me neither. Also, why the sour bit? It feels like a really weird adjective. I think they needed another syllable for the verse. And why hang him on a happy apple tree when you could do, or a sweet apple tree when you could go sour? It's just that bad for him. Finally, fearing for his life, DeCosmos escaped through a back door and submitted his resignation the next morning. More DeCosmos. He would go on to be elected to federal office and remain as an MP for quite a while until he was eventually declared insane. I'm sure we'll get to talk about him again. But maybe he will go down this time because DeCosmos is the guy that when you talk about premiers from like before 1950, he's the only one most can name, if they can name any. Up against him, I'm putting Charles Augustus Semlin. I'm going to be using an Explore Gold Country newsletter by Angela Witten as my reference here. Links for both of these will be in the show notes. Semlin was the 12th premier from August 1898 to February 1900. He was born near Barrie then Upper Canada, now Ontario, where he worked as a school teacher until he moved in to BC in 1862, also chasing the gold rush, as many did. He didn't have much luck being a gold prospector, so instead he realized the better opportunity is to be the guy selling the equipment to the prospectors rather than going and dying in the wilderness. And he eventually would set up shop in Cache Creek. During this time, he managed various businesses like Ashcroft Manor and became the first postmaster of the town and really just kept amassing land at every chance he could, developing a ranch which would eventually be named after him. He ran in the first BC legislature election and he tied and the officer had to draw his name from a hat. So there was a very 50-50 chance Semlin was not going to be a politician. In his first years in office, he lobbied for a public boarding school to be put in Cache Creek to support the settler children in the area. And that would go on to be the only boarding school run by the province until it closed in 1890. He became leader of the opposition in 1894. And as we've discussed previously, in 1898, the lieutenant governor dismissed the previous government of of Turner and, well, Semlin was the opposition leader. McInnes weirdly turned to Robert Beaven, who was not an MLA, but was a former premier. Beaven was the guy who wanted to give BC away. Uh, Beaven did not want to be premier again or could not get a cabinet together. And so Semlin was finally asked by McInnes. Quoting from Winton's article, With challenges from political rivals and party members, a year-long mining strike, railway controversy, controversial patronage appointments, and poor political structure, the short term for the gentleman rancher was tempestuous. He would not run again in 1900, saying, quote, I I felt I had done my share, and that it was time that younger shoulders were taking up the burdens of public life. Semlin was instrumental in establishing the Inland Agricultural Society of BC and the BC Cattlemen's Association, which is still active today after 120 years. With a keen interest in history, he became the president of the Yale and Lillooet Pioneer Society, not knowing he would be very much that history. Didn't go down in as much scandal as DeCosmos, but a real like classic 
British Columbian pioneer kind of character. You can find the chance to vote between DeCosmos and Semlin at Politicos Pod on our Twitter account or politicos.ca slash bracket. Voting until next Thursday at 7 p.m. Let's jump into our first main segment, decriminalizing old growth. A couple big moves by the province this week that, like I said off the top, are kicking things down the can. First, I think this was teased a little bit a couple weeks ago when the forestry overhaul was put forward on new legislation in the legislature. The government is, quote, taking action on old growth deferrals, according to a press release that has been met with not much optimism or no one seems to be happy with this. Which might just mean it's the classic compromise position. Yeah. If no one's happy, you're doing your job. So specifically, the government is saying they're going to work with First Nations to defer the logging in 2.6 million hectares of the most at-risk old growth forests. They have developed maps with independent experts, which seems like they are tied to the uh, formal review that was done a couple years ago now. These are maps are a little bit it's not that the maps are controversial, but how the government had been defining old growth for forests. I was listening to the Capital Daily podcast out of Victoria where they had Torrance Coast who's from the Wilderness Committee and one of the most vocal people on Twitter in defensive old growth forests. And he was talking about how the government has not been using the same definitions of old growth as many experts, including foresters, suggest should be used. And what we see here is a real shift to use those maps and to endorse the, quote, science-based definition of old growth forests. These maps now are flagging a specific areas. Not all old growth forests are being flagged for protection with these deferrals. What the deferral would mean is that no logging could happen for a defined period of time after which there would be a decision to either add that to protected lands that don't get logged or find a sustainable logging plan for them. The goal of the government is to work with these maps or take these maps to First Nations right and title holders to get their advice on how to proceed with deferrals in those territories. Quote, the province is requesting First Nations indicate within the next 30 days whether or not they support the deferrals, require further engagement to incorporate local Indigenous knowledge, or would prefer to discuss deferrals through existing treaties, agreements, and other constructive arrangements. And they're providing almost $13 million over three years to support those discussions. This is probably the thing that's irked most pro-deferral and First Nations groups the most is because they've just been sprung this announcement and been told you have 30 days to decide whether you want your territories to be deferred or not. And if not, what alternate arrangement do you want to come up with? And that's not a lot of time on the one hand. The other controversy is that environmentalists and conservationists wanted action more quickly, like significantly more action and months or years ago. Every day that logging isn't deferred is another 
tree cut down kind of situation. <clears throat> yeah, this is unusually fast for a government to well, act on anything. And the for just thirty days. Yeah, and like some of these nations, Which, cons- like internal consultations, can be difficult and time consuming. We are still in a pandemic and many are still at higher risk categories. So it's not a simple matter to organize a meeting, discuss it and go through the processes you need to come up with a consensus in your community. I would very much like to see governments become uh, quicker acting and more responsive on stuff. This feels like a weird place to start with that. The thing the government is doing immediately is to cease advertising and selling of BC timber sales in the affected areas. This will mean that new projects pretty much can't go ahead in the interim. So that'll stop the increase in foresting. That part and the broader deferral process is also drawing criticism from unions like the United Steelworkers and industry groups who worry about job losses. I think one government spokesperson suggested their analysis figures about 4,500 jobs might be lost. Industry groups quoted as many as 18,000. These are not insignificant numbers for the industry. So, even Yeah, even the low end, that's fairly significant effects from a, a single decision. And so it leaves everyone wondering, what is the other what else is there right because if you're going to ask first nations to not log old growth forests in their territories the the reason they do it is they need the finances and they need the money to support the development of their communities and the services in their communities that have been neglected and so if you're not offering an alternative it's hard to presume they'll just give up these revenue streams. Yeah, and, and a lot of the places further from southwest uh, corner of the province here, there isn't just a huge amount of like low-hanging economic development fruit that doesn't have resources being a part of it. So this is uh, quite a potential challenge for kind of continued growth in these regions and further kind of economic prosperity. If you do lose one of your major industries and there isn't a another alternative in place more tourism perhaps could help offset a lot a a tour guide does not make the same amount as a a logger no and you are only going to get so much wilderness tourism in the province like it's a big province and there are a lot of places that are usually easier to get to and no offense to any specific area of the province but equally beautiful Haida Gwaii has some of the top tier like tourism and in, you know, environmental tourism, ecotourism, as it were. There's a few places across the interior of BC that already have that. But you get into the middle of Vancouver Island or some of these places along the upper coast that are really hard to get to. And you're not looking at that many people who would be willing to make the effort to get there. How do we ensure prosperity across the province for everyone who lives in these lands is still an open question that will need to be addressed, both between the changes in forestry and we're not going to talk about it today, but the pending end of oil and gas as an industry in this country, which won't be immediate, but will eventually happen because of 
you know, the realities of climate change and the limits to that. Yeah, and also just technological developments too. If we're on track for EVs eventually just displacing uh, a lot of land-based fossil fuel use just because in several capacities they they're coming up to be more cost effective and and better alternatives like we may actually just hit peak oil from on the demand side more than the the supply side as people used to worry about a decade or two ago so interesting moves on forestry in the province we'll keep our eye on it and one day do a deeper dive onto it i want to Pivot now to the other big announcement from the province this week, which is that they have sent their formal request to the federal government to decriminalize drugs across the entire province. This was in the mandate letter for Sheila Malcolmson, the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. You've asked, what does she do? She wrote a letter, Scott. She wrote a... It was more than a letter, to be fair. It was a full, like, proposal on how this would work and follows a similar thing that the city of Vancouver has actually requested and has still not heard back on as far as I know. The idea being that the entire province of BC would be granted a similar exemption as Insight currently has, which is to be exempt from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, such that anyone over the age of 19 could possess up to, and the province has decided, four and a half grams of heroin, fentanyl, crack, or powder cocaine, or methamphetamines. For personal use. If you are caught with that, police would not be arresting or seizing those drugs from you. In theory, that would help alleviate some of the stigma and the pressures facing drug users. It doesn't directly deal with the tainted drug issues in that many drugs are laced with fentanyl and that's what's causing many of the overdoses. And so safe supply will still be an issue, but it's something that activists have been calling for quite a while. So yeah, we don't have a timeline on when the federal liberal government would act on this. The liberals have not been hot to the idea of decriminalizing drugs in Canada, even though the party has passed motions in support of it. With a province and a and its major city asking formally, I think that does have to weigh on the minds of the new mental health minister and the health minister in Ottawa. but And similarly, it's another policy where some people argue it's too much, the limits are too high. Others are significantly concerned that it's not enough, that weirdly it only applies to people over 19. The province's excuse or argument was that it's different legislation that deals with children. No one's in favor of letting minors do crack, but the point here is to shift things towards a healthcare approach rather than a criminalization approach. It also feels weird for like people just like 18 who are like a lot of cases considered adults, but wouldn't be for this. I guess it tries to treat it like alcohol in that way. You know, it's a crisis. It's been declared a public health crisis and an emergency. Would love to see more action respond like it is. At least this is moving forward. Finally, on provincial politics, and this will pivot to federal politics, but I wanted to talk about the political fundraising since those numbers came out this week for provincial and federal political parties. 
Let's start here in BC. So from July 1st to September 30th, 2021, the BC NDP, unsurprisingly, raised the most money, $717,686, a little bit more than the BC Liberals' $217,000. Just a bit. More than triple. Yeah. I mean, the the Liberals have a leadership race going on right now, just going to suck up a decent amount of the fundraising. They weren't exactly doing great before the leadership race either. And it's kind of weird. For a party that seems to have adopted the um, the communication style of a party that is obsessed with small dollar donations and getting the the base riled up to make those, they don't seem to be that great at actually turning those into small dollar donations. Yeah, I don't know if they just like reasonably don't want to play with the fire that will get you the most small dollar donations when you're going to more that side because it's toxic and they just kicked Aaron Gunn out of their leadership race. But they've also like done a fair bit of the NDP are, you know, terrible for doing the latest, you know, thing. This is the worst thing to happen to BC since or, or ever. And it's been a little less since the new interim leader took over, but I guess they're struggling with the fact that the Premier and the NDP are still relatively popular, and we can debate whether that should be or is justified, but the polls have shown Horgan is still among the more popular Premiers in Canada, and it's just hard to fundraise against that. Yeah, and they've also done, like, for the most part, fairly pragmatic, sensible reforms for them, rather than, you know going off and letting their more uh, ideological or partisan hack types run the show, which has probably helped maintain the popularity. Next down the list, the BC Green Party raised 185000 slightly behind the BC Liberals, which they raised less, so it should be bad. But here's a good news story for them, because they almost raised as much as the official opposition, and they're a party of two MLAs. Good for them, I guess, or I guess bad for the Liberals. I think the Greens are celebrating this as a pretty successful. I don't have the historicals for us to compare on this, but I think this is a pretty good quarter for the BC Greens. I think they claim it's their best non-election quarter. I seem to recall they've generally been in the six-figure range or high high five figures in past ones. This is good, though. And if they're continuing to be able to pull this, particularly with the NDP being relatively popular, it shows they're finding their base, they're finding their issues. and. I think the big concern when Andrew Weaver announced he was stepping down was, will the Greens still have legitimacy when they change leaders? Will someone else be able to make the party as successful as he did? And I think First Now clearly put those to bed during the election campaign last year. But the fact she's continuing to perform on fundraising and in the House and otherwise shows the BC Green Party are here to stay. Unlike the federal Greens, and we'll get to them in a second. Just quickly, the BC Conservatives raised $8,500. They still don't exist. The rural BC Party raised $60. You'd think the leader alone would have chipped in. Maybe he already uh, did. You can if, if you hit your max, you don't get reported in that quarter. Maybe he did in January. Federally, Quickly, the Conservatives raised the most, $9.8 million, the Liberals $7.6 million, the NDP about $4 million, the Greens $1.3 million, and the Bloc $1.2 million. 
most interesting for me is the liberals actually had 57,000 don individual donors to the conservatives 50,000. The federal numbers are particularly interesting as these came these overlap most of the election campaign. The entire election campaign, I don't remember when voting day was at this point. It was um is it like September 20th? There would have been some overlap. Yeah, Q3 goes to September 30th. Yeah, so it would be about 10 days after it, and then Rick didn't drop till what, started far just so? You'd have about a month before and then about uh, 10 days or so after. So strong numbers from the Liberals and Conservatives, decent numbers from the NDP, the Greens and Bloc being in the same realm is funny, but not horrible numbers from the Greens. Yeah, I thought they'd be doing worse. Like, I don't know, who's giving the Greens money now? Who wants to see their donation going to legal fees in the f for the fight against the leader? Who, who's not the leader, but hasn't stopped being the leader. What, what a time to be a Green. Moving on to our second segment, Falcon Falls, the... Big story at the end of last weekend, at the start of this week in the BC Liberal leadership race, were these allegations posted in a letter on social media from Diamond Isinger, who is a campaign manager on the Michael Lee campaign, about members of the Kevin Falcon leadership campaign harassing her at an incident on Friday, October 29th. She described it as including sexual comments from an individual, sexually suggestive jokes, and at the worst point, I was berated with misogynistic slurs and profane insults. She said that in the couple days following that event, her concerns were being written off by those involved as unreasonable, exaggerated, or crazy. This prompted quite the notice when she posted it the next day morning, Kevin Falcon released a full statement. That evening, he said he was taking on counsel to investigate the claims, which was not met with a very positive review. Yeah, lawyering up generally is not the best Tom's response to a situation like It's like not this. necessarily the wrong response, but talking about- You don't lead with that in, when you talk to everyone about it. Yeah, it's just a pragmatic thing to do, but- that can probably go without saying or be the, the tail end of the, the piece. Because noticeably what it didn't do is engage empathetically at all with the actual allegations and go off or sorry and uh, respond to that as just a normal human thing. On Monday, November 1st in the morning, I think it was like 9.30 a.m., he tweeted out a statement on Kevin Falcon, let's go letterhead. That said, last night... Feels way too upbeat for this, as a, a letterhead. Like, I get they probably don't have a, you know, a specific uh, thing in their style guide for this, but it, it felt... It's like you want it to look formal, but then you make the mistake that your formality is informal. Hmm. He says, last night I spoke to Diamond Isinger and apologized for the behavior of members of my campaign team. She had informed me about the specific actions of one particular individual on the team. We've since spoken to that member, and based on the conversation, there was sufficient acknowledgement of Diamond's account, and I have ended the relationship between him and my campaign team. He fired someone. That's what that says. Probably. That's how it was reported by other press when they read it. Ended the relationship is 
a tournament. I, I guess there isn't like a good English language word for fire of someone who you're not actually paying because they're so it's unclear in isinger's statement she says some were employed and some were volunteers falcon we don't know who these individuals were they haven't been named in isinger's statement they haven't been named by the falcon campaign and as far as i can tell no one has sleuthed that out and reported it so all we have is isinger's statement falcon goes on to mention that he is you know still looking into the allegations and condemns that kind of behavior. The statement, it's one of those weird statements where it like meets the checkboxes of everything you would hope a response would include, but still falls weirdly flat and soulless. Well, I think it's, if anything, maybe that it does hit everything. Like the exact kind of formalized comms approach to it, but there's no kind of humanity to it it feels very mid like 2010s calm professional kind of response rather than i think a more authentic response and that that's i think part of the issue with kevin falcon's run to date is that he feels like he hasn't upgraded to the new culture around politics that does require a certain degree of authenticity that just doesn't really come across. And the the overly polished, or it's not even really polished in this case, but the overly workshopped approach just, I don't think, works anymore. It feels phony in a way that maybe didn't back when Kevin Falcon was a senior cabinet minister. Yeah, it's also a lot of people pointed out in the quote tweets and replies that it falls a bit flat when this wasn't your first statement. Like maybe you didn't also act that. on the individual volunteer, but like in this, he does express some sympathy or empathy. And the phrasing's a bit weird. The incident as laid out as by Diamond is reprehensible and wrong. I don't know why he uses her first name there rather than even Ms. Isinger. Like a little bit more formality there might have helped it be a bit less like. Diamond said this and she said that. It's weird. Like, it's not bad, but it, it didn't work well. Uh, as I mentioned, Isinger's on the Michael Lee campaign, his campaign, and he put out a statement. It was a letter to the Leadership Election Organizing Committee and the executive of the BC Liberals, where he expresses his concern about the events and general and he references other allegations that have happened within the party, many of which aren't public, but he'll leave that to those involved to daylight should they choose. But he flags in his letter that, quote, our BC Liberal Party has no code of conduct or other guiding documents to address misbehaving within our party. This absence of a code of conduct preserves a culture free of consequences. And he goes on to say, I urge the BC Liberal Party to immediately implement a code of conduct that ensures the respectful behavior of everyone involved in our rebuilding process. I also request that the party appoints a complaints officer and empower the individual with the resources they need to act as confidential, respectful, and trusted liaison who will treat individuals with the dignity they deserve, independent from any influence from our leadership campaigns. He points out the federal liberals, the federal conservatives, and his own campaign all have codes of conduct and these processes in place to handle harassment and abuse allegations. It's wild the BC liberals don't have that. Yeah. I don't really have anything to add to that. Yeah, 
Orcs should be a just a standard part of any party's internal or bylaws and codes of conduct and constitution. Yeah, every every organization. It would be a party bylaw thing. But yeah, it should just be a standard practice to have. Like, nonprofits I work with have that. They're not always great. They always take effort and commitment to make sure they're followed. But not having them, it's one of those signs that things aren't being taken seriously. And it's wild in that, like, during the Christy Clark years, like Christy Clark replied to Isinger saying, sorry that this happened to you and expressed a heartfelt tweet. <laughs> More heartfelt than Kevin Falcons, ironically. But she brought in a policy where all schools, public and private in BC, had to have anti-bullying policies that protected people on a variety of grounds, including sexual orientation, gender identity and expression, race, ethnicity, sex, etc., and so, if we can say to our schools that they have to have anti-bullying policies, you think our political parties would, and you, and I would think that she, as leader, would have overseen that internal process happening. But I guess it just got missed. I don't know where the f- this goes in the campaign. I don't know how widely this is being noticed. It's still early in the BC Liberal leadership race, and. Maybe Falcon's moves have done enough that it moves this story to the background, but... I I think this is probably one of those things that isn't going to, you know, make or break a campaign. But what it does do is it does just build on the, the narrative that's already out there a bit, that Kevin Falcon's just lost a step, maybe, not the dread, just isn't good at the basic stuff that happens in politics and is rusty and out of uh, practice on it and maybe not the guy to be leader and that's where I think the potential kind of long-term effects of this are going to be seen as whether or not this sort of thing that people start having doubts early and then there's the not great debate performed with it just continues to build and the, the the bad response on this just being you know one straw that keeps getting at. one straw among many going on the camel's back. Well, pivoting from there to our quick takes, we're going to lead off with the sexual misconduct file that is still ravaging our armed forces. We have an update this week as political action is finally happening under the new defense minister anita anand she has announced that she is going to implement all four interim recommendations that have come forward from former chief former supreme court justice louise arbour who was appointed in april to begin a review of the military's handling of sexual harassment and misconduct the final results of that are still not expected until next spring but she put out a letter to then Minister Harjit Sajan on October 20th saying most prominently that immediately the military should transfer investigation and prosecution of sexual misconduct cases within the armed forces to civilian justice system. They can keep investigating them and should still investigate them internally, but it's clear that the military justice system has failed horribly over this period. And, well, I don't think many people would say the civilian criminal justice system has been particularly effective at ending rape culture. It's less bad 
and there's some chance for justice for some individuals involved in that case. It's a good recommendation. Glad they're acting on it. There's still a lot that could be done on the table from the report commissioned six years ago during the Harper era on these issues in the military. And it'll be really interesting to watch what Anand does in this role, because the big criticism against Harjit Sajan was how much did you know and how little did you do? And it seems like a lot and nothing are the answers to those respectively. Well, the defense minister isn't the only person with a lot on her hands. Erin O'Toole, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, is facing a new, quote, direct challenge to his leadership in the form of a new sub-caucus within the Conservative Party called the Civil Liberties Caucus. The Civil Liberties in question being anti-vats, basically. Yeah, can, I, can I spread but COVID to other people? Yeah. Yes. These are 15 to 30 conservative MPs and senators. We don't have their full names all listed, but Marilyn Gladue is speaking on their behalf and has said that there will soon be a website or Facebook page. Face, it'll be a Facebook page, let's be honest, to rally around. These are MPs in particular who are quite upset that Parliament is looking to require all who enter its doors to be vaccinated, as especially by November 22nd when Parliament resumes. There are rumors that MPs in the Conservative Party are probably going to try and bring questions of privilege as soon as physically possible to challenge that decision by the Board of Internal Economy. It really looks like the Conservative Party might rip itself in shreds on the day the House of Commons opens, in which case, even if nothing changed seat-wise, this election for Justin Trudeau may have been the most brilliant strategy he's done yet. Batch uh, wanted to do, do the privilege uh, trolls when the Vatson policy came into effect, whether or not there would have been an election. But yeah, the spotlight the election put on the issue probably didn't help on that. I am really curious to see how public this caucus is. And if we do get to know the names of the dozen or more people who are involved, like for years, there was a pro-life caucus in Ottawa, and the names of that were rarely publicized. But these were MPs, generally mostly conservatives, but there were a few liberals in there at times. And don't think there was ever officially an NDP MP in there, although there was maybe one sympathetic years ago before it was officially party policy to be pro-choice. Um, but like these sub-caucuses can be influential in terms of just rallying some support, but like they never managed to pass a anti-choice bill in Ottawa, so I don't know how. Yeah, it's. I mean, well, that's always been a political non-starter since basically the what ninety-three or whatever when the the, the liberals came in, and it's yeah, it that's politically never going to happen here. Doesn't mean it's not a constant pain in the the side of the whatever person is conservative leader, as this is turning into as well. I just want a decent opposition and. This ain't it. Maybe Mike Morris in the the new Green MP will provide it. I, I'm I'm not holding my breath on that one. Uh, speaking of conservative challenges, there is a challenge to the leadership of the Manitoba Progressive Conservatives. Brian Pallister, Costa Rican semi-resident uh, and former Premier of Manitoba, notably stepped down a few months ago as Premier. 
There was a leadership race bet- predominantly between Heather Stephenson and Shelley Glover. Stephenson was announced the victor, I believe, in this last week. She won by a narrow margin of 363 votes. Glover has refused to concede and is now suing for a review of the leadership race. And the Manitoba Supreme Court will decide on November 19th whether they have the jurisdiction to review this complaint, which I believe centers largely around mail-in ballots and whether every vote was counted that should have been counted. It's just a great way to start the next era of Manitoba conservatism. Yeah, well, I think Glover even went as far as to ask the lieutenant governor not to uh, swear in Stephenson. Yes, she did. Which is just something. I think as far, yeah, and even like said, she was the, she should have been the premier. So I know we don't have the Avignon premier and the Winnipeg premier here. Angus Reid had a poll, had national polls recently, and they put one out for Manitoba, which I believe had the NDP in the lead. So be curious, which is actually quite a big lift for them because the last couple elections under Pallister, the conservatives have been really entrenching a new dominance after replacing the previous NDP government there. So I don't know, think politics is getting interesting in Manitoba. I don't know if it ever was, but no offense to our friend, our listeners, our friends out there. Finally, the right to bear arms moves to Ottawa. Well, not exactly the, but Jugmeet Singh thinks it's time for House of Commons to drop the gender-based dress code. Unlike BC, there's no requirement that women cover their shoulders in Ottawa in the House of Commons, but there are gender requirements in Parliament that men wear a jacket and tie to speak, but there aren't specific rules for women. They just have to be dressed in formal business wear or contemporary business attire is the quote. I think this has come up a couple times with like your quirky backbench MPs who forget a tie And then the question comes out of whether they should be denied the ability to speak to a motion or not. I'm for it, by the way. I'm for scrapping the code. Like, I'm not against wearing ties, but just having a more generic dress formally or look professional. Yeah, I think the dress formally part's really the important thing. And we're like, the culture's moving in the direction where ties are less and less worn with a suit. You walk around Vancouver and of the like dozen people who actually wear a suit, I don't know like half of them don't have ties. So like may- maybe you can make an argument that at least as far as the West Coast is concerned, that tieless is contemporary business attire. I'm still fine with having a kind of step above that in terms of formality, a- and it really is. I think the important thing that needs to be maintained is the the formality of the situation and exactly how that gets codified yeah should probably be revised every now and then as long as the tour remains there yeah Singh in particularly in particular highlights this as it risks singling out trans and non-binary individuals who may not dress traditionally formal but are still professionally dressed this is notable as one of the ndp mps uh, for Edmonton, NDP MP Blake Desjardins is uh, two-spirit, I believe. And so he wears a tie at times, but other times it's more traditional Métis wear. And so 
being inclusive of the different ways people can look professional, I think is a worthy goal. I don't think this is going to be a red line, like confidence decision by the NDP, but it is a let's make parliament a bit more inclusive. And that's something worth doing. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening. I'm going to let the cat out. (laughs) He's always like asleep in this room when I start recording. And then by 8.39, he starts wanting to go upstairs and see if his food is there. You don't just move him out uh, pre-recording? I think I used to do that. I probably should. Anyway, cut that.